Yo, what's good? It's another episode of Real Sankara Hours. Real Sankara Hours, this is a free episode from... Um, oh, oh, this is free? I was yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is... Uh, yeah, because the last episode we did was a bonus episode on Walter Rodney that you should check out. Um, yeah. $5 a month at patreon.com slash Real Sankara Hours. This is Real Sankara Hours. Um, you know, your favorite black Marxist political podcast... Uh, follow us at Sankara Hours on Twitter. My name is Adam Hudson. Follow me at Adam Hudson Five on Twitter. And this is Peter M Gunn. Follow me at M Gunn Peter, where the discourse is back to its usual terrible self. But we won't yep. get into that. Um, it has it has been a minute. Um, I, last last time we were here, we recorded it on Friday morning in the hours between. Trump had gotten the diagnosis um, <laughs> and he had gone to the hospital. So I, that was a that was a episode that had almost instantly become out of date as soon as we recorded. it. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yes. tr- Trump got covid and now, uh, yeah, he got covid, then went to Walter Reed for a couple of days and and now and now he's all better. Okay. Case closed. Game, game <laughs> over. He yeah. Beat it. He got loads of loads of fucking steroids and coke yeah. and and meth and Ritalin yeah. and um, and and, re- and regener- here's, here's Regeneron. Here's one. Yes, which yeah, they didn't give my dad any of that stuff. Um, but they yeah, it's, hearing him like come out out of it and like when he was talking about hey everyone, it's your favorite president. That was. He's definitely lost a step. Like, he's definitely not the same person. Which, you know, yeah, because COVID is not, like, it's not the fucking flu, guys. Like, it's like it's really fucking bad. It's a motherfucker of a disease. And yeah. he was on supplemental oxygen. He was on a ventilator for some time. I'm pretty sure that, like, when they were tweeting out, like, the fake photos and stuff, that like he was probably on the ventilator at that time while they were basically doing triage to figure out what they were going to do next because mm-hmm. uh, this is definitely a thing that caught them by surprise and then once they figured that out they they yeah pumped him full of drugs and brought him off and they're gonna cart him around until the election's over you know just kind of push it literally just push him past the finish line and then you know see what happens but he definitely, I don't, I won't say it was humanizing, but you could tell he had a sense of his own mortality and he was just not doing well. And he was, you know, doing basic, like, like the one thing I had heard, I heard from him, it, it, sat, it was essentially a pharmaceutical ad for Regeneron and Eli Lilly. He kept name checking Eli Lilly, which actually makes sense because he's uh, very close to Eli Lilly, right? Yeah, well, also, I mean, I want to mention this about Regeneron, this um, pharmaceutical company. Uh, Trump is um, has personal ties with the Regeneron CEO. The CEO of Regeneron actually uh, went to Trump's uh, golf club. Um, yeah, he's became, been yeah, he's been secretary a, of health and human services. Yeah, uh, Regeneron CEO Dr. Leonard uh, Schleifer. Oh, um, oh th- no. 
this is someone else. This is uh, yeah. you're probably thinking of someone else, but yeah, like he's he's been a member of Trump's golf club in Westchester, New York. Um, Regeneron also received four hundred and fifty million dollars in government funding in July. Um, nice, and um, also uh, Trump also recently owned shares of Regeneron, so. He he had um he got this Trump got this drug remdesivir and then um I think it was dexamethasone um yeah I'm, I think when I'm, I'm pronouncing that right but basically he got a bunch yeah. of drugs that like are steroids and if you really look into because sometimes when you hear this they, medical yeah. ter- terminology you're like what the fuck but if you're taking drugs like these that means your condition's very very serious yeah 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 that means you're basically about to go on the ventilator or like are trying to come off of it mm-hmm. um no i was thinking of the former president of eli Lilly, alex azar who then became secretary of health and human services and mm. still is so i you know you gotta love a classic trump he uh somehow he's able to make money off of getting coronavirus you know yeah Because you got to give it to him for that even though it's going to probably kill him but you know no tears shed on this podcast Nope. But I just I I felt it I just felt it kind of sad just because it seemed like he actually had some sort of brush with his own mortality in it and you know what I've learned in this life is that you can have all the kind of transformative experiences you want but then you if you go back to the same environment you're just the same person but for a brief moment it seemed like yeah he you know he had a sense of what this virus actually is and what it actually does to people and realized oh. Maybe this isn't something I should have played around with, and maybe people actually do need a lot of help right now. But unfortunately, the only way Trump knows how to help anyone is by pitching products. Yeah, and that's what that's that was the I guess moment of realization I had. I was like, no, this is him trying to help. The only thing he knows how to do is sell shit. And yeah, so he's trying to sell a drug. Literally trying to sell drugs. Uh-huh. right and and he he's taking like this there's no cure for covid here's the thing people i said this in a earlier episode like when the pandemic first hit like you know a virus like covid is is similar to the flu in a sense like there's no real cure for it the best thing you could do is is um develop an, an immunity or a vaccine so yeah what he got he's saying is secure but it's like well no you can't a virus like COVID, you can't cure it. The best thing you could do is build up an immunity or get a vaccine. That's the thing that'll... Because the thing about COVID is... Um, I think what's going to be clear is that COVID-19 is not going away. It's something that's just going to be there with us for you know the rest of our lives. But um, it'll just be like one of those diseases where you just get like a normal uh, vaccine for it like every year or so. Yeah. C- kind of like the flu shot. So... There's no vaccine available for COVID yet. You can't cure it in the way that you can, like, you know, cure, like, polio or something or any other disease. That's not how a a virus like COVID-19 works. Yeah, that's not how viruses work. No, viruses, like, there's no cure for a virus. The only only quote-unquote cure is a vaccine so that your body becomes immune to the virus so it it doesn't freaking kill you. That, so... So we're not at the stage in which there's a vaccine available yet. So the things that Trump got were just purely experimental. And even the the cocktail or what antibody shit that he got from Regeneron, like 
you know, he was just one person and it was, it was still like in its testing phase. So there's, it's not even verified that the stuff he got is actually effective. But, you know, like Peter said, like, it, it doesn't matter. He's just there to sell a product and also instill confidence into his lizard brain chud fucker base that, you know, he, he, he is somehow, he somehow has like these godlike powers to defeat COVID, mm-hmm. which is like, no, that's not how. I mean, forgetting, like, all, you know, sort of basic understanding of science, like, someone like Trump can't, I mean, it's, 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 um, the world's fucking upside down. But my point is that, you know, there, a virus, there's no cure for it. And so the best that they were able to do is just stabilize his body. But, you know, that virus, I'm pretty sure, is still in his system, because today is October 12th. And he just had a fucking rally in Florida and his doctor said that, oh, he tested negative for COVID, which I don't know how, how true that is because even because a lot of like Trump's personal doctors, what they've been saying is different than people outside of Trump's circle. So his personal doctors are just trying to say like whatever makes him look good and manage a situation that they know is bad. Yeah. So like even if um Trump, let's say he's he is like negative, uh. He's already infected multiple people in his own inner circle, including people like Chris Christie, Senator Mike Lee, I, Kellyanne, I, I, Con- I, Kellyanne Conway. Um, oh, and that asshole Stephen Miller, that piece of shit. Yeah, um, yeah, I really want him to die, but we're not going to get that. Okay, I feel like Chris Christie's the only one who's actually going to die. Yeah, <laughs> I can see, th- I can see that happening. That's, that's 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 the most poetic. What what one of the most tragic cucked characters in American politics is Chris Christie. Uh, but yeah, it's, yeah, he, he's not better. I mean, COVID does long-term damage. And for the time that I'm sure he was on the ventilator, like, like that's bad for your brain. Like it is like that does brain damage. And it's not like he was, you know, very good before this. So, you know, like the idea of, uh, you know, I we don't. I don't want to get triumphalist or proclaim anything too loudly or whatever because, you know, we're we we still yeah. You know, we're in the ninth inning. We're like one out away, or we've got or one out in. There's still two more outs before the game's over. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the game's not over. But it's like, I just by a gut feeling, I'm just I'm not seeing. I can't see how how he's gonna be around for another four years it's yeah you know be, and this is and we'll trans and this, we'll tra- use this as a transition to something i made the mistake of doing which is watch the vice presidential debate um unless you oh sorry i actually sorry, yeah but, something to say. yeah no, yeah sorry. i just wanted to make a quick mention before before um i forget but this will also tie into the vice presidential debate Speaking of, you know, Kamala Harris being California's top cop when she was attorney general, um, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention, but there have been um, widespread protests in Nigeria against police brutality. So there's this um, infamous police unit in Nigeria called SARS. S-A-R-S. So not the disease SARS, um, but SARS. No, I'm sure that's not an accident. Yeah. So the SARS, it stands for Special Anti-Robbery Squad, and it was formed in 1992 
to address um violent crime in Nigeria, but um basically so this police unit has been accused of um basically just uh, very egregious um forms of violence against the Nigerian people including like you know torture uh extrajudicial killing so that must have been trained by us maybe i i wouldn't um i don't know <laughs> i'm not an expert on on this specific uh police unit but um uh of of sars but like i'll but i do know like just kind of just through basic kind of um cursory research also it would be nice like also uh if, if someone who's listening to this podcast uh knows any you know nigerian specialists and activists on sars like just give us a shout out because I'd, I'd love to you know pick their brain on that but um so yeah like they've they've been um accused of um i think they're i think oh yeah like this is on august 10th 2019 um sars operatives were on a raid um to arrest kidnappers and um when they as they were trying to sub, subdue the kidnappers they fired several shots and a stray bullet hit a pregnant woman who died on the spot um and apparently an angry mob lynched two police officers on the spot so oh wow yeah so um, i don't play in nigeria yeah so um yeah the sars like yeah they they've they've been involved in some pretty pretty heinous shit um yeah including like torture extortion um so there have been a lot of protests against this police unit in nigeria and just uh yesterday the nigerian government agreed to disband sars the police unit so basically this is um uh close to police abolition <laughs> i mean not out not like full-on police abolition but this is this is one thing that really struck out to me with this story is that because the discourse here like has shifted to more people embracing the idea of um if not outright police abolition but also defunding the police and there are still people who think like oh you know that's just a you know crazy fucking outlandish idea but um I think the disbanding of SARS, like, is a, I guess you could say a, ha- a half measure in terms of the, in terms of abolishing police. But there are still activists on the ground, though, who are saying that, um, this disbandment of SARS, is not nearly enough, and people are still protesting. So, uh, I'm just reading from one of the points that activists have been talking about. So. Um, basically what's going to happen is that like the officers in SARS will be just going to other police units, which is just like, you know, kind of similar to the protests in Antioch against officer, um, Malone who shot and killed a man in San Francisco, but then just was transferred to another department. Um, so uh, apparently there's going to be a new police arrangement for tackling armed robbery and violent crimes. Like that's supposed to be. So they disbanded SARS, but it seems like they're just the the replacement for SARS. Probably won't probably won't be that much better either. But, um, but I do think that it's interesting just you know to look at the protests in Nigeria against SARS, and then a lot of the protests against police violence and police terrorism in the United States, 
and um, kind of just you know sharing notes in terms of um, uh, what's you know like what's possible that people can achieve. Yeah. So I just wanted to make a quick mention that I'm not an expert on the special anti-robbery squad in Nigeria, but um, it is a story that I think is, uh, yeah, definitely deserve, deserves worth mentioning on, on this podcast. And yeah, just definitely shout out to the um, activists and protesters in Nigeria. It's, it's been getting a lot of coverage, um, particularly amongst the uh, Nigerian diaspora in the West. So I think that's why, that's part of the reason why um, it's been getting more, widespread attention yeah. out outside of uh nigeria so the protests are still going on so yeah definitely solidarity with them and uh yeah i wanted to mention that because i think this is it's a pretty important issue and also like you know i've been thinking about africa in general doesn't get t- uh, talked about enough seriously in um left-wing and progressive media spaces so um, that's something yeah. I, that's definitely a void I, I really aim to fill. So yeah, we talked about Zimbabwe in a previous episode. So now we're talking, mentioning a bit about Nigeria. And, uh, I think we did mention a little bit about Liberia in a previous episode. So, um, yeah. anyway, yeah, I just wanted to make a mention of, um, the protest in Nigeria against SARS and, um, uh, what the disbandment of SARS, because I think, um, I just I thought it was interesting to note that because of the in terms of where the discourse is at here in the United States in terms of yeah. calls to defund the police and uh, well, abolishing police. Well, it's interesting, and this is true in a lot of situations where like Africa is actually further ahead than the United States in terms of like progressive social reforms on stuff. And this is I think I mean certainly you know in hearing of sort of hearing about this you know, in real time, my reaction is that, yeah, this is a win and it's a good representation of that, you know, at least in other, you know, non-insane countries, uh, though Nigeria has its own share of problems in its own right. Oh, yeah. But um, that there, people power can be organized against the police and it can be used to reduce the police's power because, you know, if you're... You know, I this sounds like basically the equivalent of like SWAT teams. Yeah, like yeah, pretty, yeah. I was I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, like yeah, they're pretty much. I think they're similar to SWAT teams here in the U.S. So yeah. I think like if we were to make a comparison, it'd be like here in the United States, the U.S. government agreeing to just disband all SWAT units around the yeah. country. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, any any sort of reduction in, you know, aboli- abolishing the police or whatever is impossible in our capitalism but also you know that's like a long-term goal but any measure that reduces the power of the police is good yeah and is and that's and that's just true worldwide because there's you know even if you were in like a socialist state let's say where there are still a police you know there may still be a need for a police force you don't want like the police force to be the most powerful entity in the state. It doesn't matter what kind of a state it is, though, certainly. So, you know, you want you. Yes, it's good that you want you don't want the repressive apparatus to be any stronger than it has to be, you know, at the bare minimum to be able to actually preserve national security. 
um, and keep daily life functioning. And so that's a thing that I think people need to be more aware of. And I think one of the good parts about Pan-Africanism is the ability to look to other parts of the world and see, oh, they're actually, you know, more ahead of this than we are. And, you know, that there's that there's other that this can work and that it can work in situation because it's like, oh, well, if the police are racist, what about African cops? And it's like, well, no, we don't like African cops, too. Right. Uh, Right. And they're they're enforcing. They are enforcers of, you know, still neocolonial social order, globally speaking. Exactly. So so they're not like the friends, you know, the like any any like any system like police should never be normalized. They should never be like valorized or you know seen as like amazing people or heroes or whatever that that like all like any kind of police worship is like you know at the very least proto-fascist you know if not just outright fascist yeah um and speaking of proto to outright fascism let's transition back ding ding there we go so yeah i yeah um one of the uh uh Kaylee in Afrogen Revolt, which is also an amazing podcast that you should check out, part mm-hmm. of the Resistance Noir Network, um, and mentioned the possibility of streaming the BP debate. So then I'd start thinking about it because I'd forgotten about it. And so then I decided to watch some of it or, you know, I started watching it. It was dumb, turned it off, took an edible, uh, then turned it back on and it kicked in like right when the fly hit Mike Pence's head. So I will say in the moment it was a very hilarious moment. Um, I was I was laughing out loud because it is it's very symbolic um, for those who missed it of uh, Mike Pence the you know grown in a vat type of Christian Christian you know Jesus and guns fascism uh, that you know is the general republic that is you know the baseline of the Republican party, you know, he, while he was, while he was, it was, the question was about, uh, Breonna Taylor. And while he was talking about how great cops were, a fly landed on his head for two minutes. Um, obviously because he's a piece of shit, but that wasn't, that, that also was, I did not watch the debate, yeah. but the, the thing that really got on my nerves was like all these like lives being like, Oh my God! Black flies matter, and oh, you know what? Uh, the fly is Mike Pence's only black friend, and I'm like, oh, 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 cool. Okay, so now that we're in this moment where, like, you know, people are discussing anti-blackness and how to respect black people, the best quip that y'all can come up with is comparing black people to flies, and it's like, all right, like, and some people are like, well, you know, it was a timing, and da 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 da. I'm like, no, fuck you. Like, we're 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 past that shit at this point yeah people people thinking it's okay to make uh jokes about black people in comparison to um insects in order to make some sort of own against a dipshit white conservative that you guys hate like we're not gonna be fucking mules for you know your your vendetta against you know a, a idiot pile of fuck like mike piss pence yeah yeah, and and it is representative of actually why debates are stupid because yeah. it then turns into like you know some meme moment, and then like everyone loses their minds because 
the you know the, I, this this one was in and I actually wanted there are actual other things about it that I did want to mention because it was interesting unlike that absolute horror show that was Joe Biden versus Donald Trump this was more like what a normal quote unquote debate would be like like one you know like Obama versus Romney or some shit like that right just like the nor like normally in a normal year what a what that kind of a debate would be um and it was you know like it was very stupid it's obviously like like this is nerd theater it's nerd professional wrestling that's what yeah. it is um but you can watch it as such and it's very much like kamala harris doing the performance of wokeness as she is continually interrupted and mansplained and talked over and all you know by the corporeal representation of the patriarchy uh, who then also is like trying to you know well actually his way into tricking Kamala Harris into saying she's going to pack the court uh, and you know trying to portray her as representative of the radical left which I always find hilarious I really I really don't know what this radical left that the Republicans keep talking about that as in control of the Democratic Party. I would like to meet that party. <laughs> um, but the, I mean, the scary thing about that debate is that like one of those two people is going to have a lot of power very soon uh, because both of the people they would be serving under are have one foot in the grave and, you know, at <laughs> least two or three toes of the other foot. So, they, you know, I mean, Pence seems is really like a total idiot. And like if he were halfway competent, like he would be making all the moves and uh, and like basically assuming like, oh, no, this is mine and trying to get Trump out of the way as fast as he could. And, you know, getting all the ducks lined up again to actually do the real fascism needed to steal the election properly, which I think all of that has gotten thrown into chaos um, with trump getting covid but you know we'll see but on the flip side you have kamala harris who actually i thought you know did a pretty good job like it it was a pretty capable performance she seemed very stately and that libs who you know the the msnbc crowd who maybe had not made up an opinion about her or you know maybe had held on to some idea like oh but she's a cop you know they're all in on her now, and she was she was slaying Queen all over the place. And oh, yeah, yes. I I uh, I mean, going back to what I was saying about the Black Flies Matter, the thing that really, um, because everybody went in on it like all over fucking Twitter, yeah. and the, and the thing that got me annoyed, and it also ties with the sort of some of the Yas Queen, uh, you know, standing was that like a phrase like black black lives matter was originally meant to humanize black people and show like okay you know like i mean i mean i'm not into the whole like we need to beg other people to acknowledge our humanity when it's like we we don't really need their validation but i do see like yeah there is a political necessity to say a phrase like black lives matter at the time it came about and so it was meant to humanize black people but then it gets twisted into some dumb joke that compares us to flies in order to make some sort of sick own against pence and it's like you know some people are making a good point that uh 
oh wow these are our allies doing this like oh okay like this is what yeah. they really think about us so that was that yeah. was a thing that really rubbed me the wrong way but going back to what you're saying about the um the uh, sort sort of what the the yes queen crowd or yeah what? yes well yes the people who are who Kamala Harris officially started slaying queens all over the place right right I was I was seeing a bunch of shit like um oh my god look at her facial expression she looks like the typical like black auntie or the typical Indian auntie it's like oh my god like why why <laughs> she's not your fucking aunt okay like, no no <laughs> she's this just is... she's I... like it's just weird like it's just weird um. Uh, like like parasocial thing yeah. that people have with politicians like look they're not your friends like they're not they, they're not yes. your relatives they're not your friend she's a politician like everybody they, they else. don't want to hang out with you you don't want to hang out with them if you actually saw how any of these people behaved in real life you would all understand you'd understand them to be the freaks that they are because they're all either insanely insecure and they need to be loved and that's why they're politics mm-hmm. or they're psychopaths And I would say that Harris is probably more on the psychopath level just because she's also incredibly imperialist and Lord only knows what kind of, I mean, it'll it'll actually be quite funny um, if and when, I mean, I, you know, maybe I shouldn't be presumptive, but honestly, it doesn't matter to me, like which of these assholes are in charge. I'm sorry. People don't like me saying that, but I don't really care beyond the fact that everyone else is freaking out. And actually, I would love for the fucking Maddow crowd to go back to brunch and go back to sleep because you hmm. people just get in the way, honestly, um, so that actual people can do actual work. But, like, <laughs> yeah, I cannot wait for when, like, she really starts, like, sending, you know, heavy weaponry to Ukrainian fascists and she's still going to be, like, the woke queen. Um, that's going to be that's going to be awesome. Oh, it's gonna be great. I'm because... I'm gonna I'm gonna really enjoy some of the woke drone strikes over Kenya. I'm yeah. looking forward yes. to that. Oh yeah, yeah, Kenya, Somalia, all the African countries. You know, it but it, it'll be okay because Putin was man spreading again or something like that. And uh, by um, the way, speaking of Kenya, there were there was a uh, um an article in the New York Times that I actually think is pretty important. But the U.S. military is looking to expand um new authorities to carry out armed drone strikes in Kenya, uh, targeting um, Al-Qaeda-linked Al-Shabaab fighters. Al-Shabaab started in Somalia, and so um, Kenya, you know, if you if you look at a map, Kenya shares a border with Somalia. So, yeah, like, this is happening under Trump, and no, Trump is not, like, an anti-interventionist, anti-war president. Um, stop listening to that dumb shit. Uh, so, so, yeah, like, you know, this war machine is going to, if Biden and Harris get elected, it's going to be handed off to them. And, um, yeah, I, I look forward to, well, not look forward, like, you know, pay attention for upcoming, you know, woke uh, Yas Queen drone strikes um, over villages in Kenya. And, and, all the, and all the problematic male leftists were being upset right. about, by calling attention to it. Um, yeah, drunk strikes killing, like, you know, yeah, innocent women and children in, in, you know, the horn in East Africa. Yeah. It's total, total toxic masculinity right there. It's it's misogynoir. Yeah. Hateration. Yeah. I, man, what are we even doing in Kenya? I mean, it's the same thing where it was like, when, when the news came out that like two, like special forces people got killed in Niger, and it's like, 
wait, what are we doing in Niger? And it's like, shh, you weren't supposed to know that. Yeah. It's like, I, yeah, right. Fucking yeah. everywhere. Well, I mean, this is, this is like, because this war on terror has pretty much become, uh, like, never-ending. Like, this, this yeah. state of perpetual war we've been in pretty much since the country's founding, but the war on terror is, like, kind of a new phase in this. And now the war on terror is like, oh, you know, it's normal now. I mean, there are now, um, uh, like, the men who first got sent to serve in Afghanistan their sons are now in the military and serving in Afghanistan. Like, this is where we're at with the so-called war on terror. Father and son in the same war. I love yeah. you, dad. Yeah. Uh, and um, this is pretty much where we're at with the war on terror. Like, because, you know, Obama did a really good job of maintaining the war on terror in a way that's a lot more stealthy and, uh, you know, hidden behind closed doors. So now, yeah, like the... The authorities of the 2001 AUMF, which was already broad to begin with, it's been stressed to include any sort of quote-unquote terrorism affiliate in any other country. So yeah, like yeah. because of um because of uh, the 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 2011 NATO intervention in Libya and how much it destabilized that country, the fallout is now spreading and the whole to, region. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's the fallout basically spread to countries like Niger. Mali, and then also um, our drone strikes in Somalia against Al Shabaab, like has meant that um, that there's going to be spillover in countries like uh, Kenya. So, you know, this yeah, this uh, this this yeah. this permanent assassination drone program, like yeah, it's here to stay. And you know, when Biden Harris get in, if if they get it, I mean, the results are you know we're not the outcome is not certain, but you know, if they get in, they're going to have control over this in the same way that Trump had control over um, the assassination program, which is part of the reason why he was able to um, assassinate that Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani. Back, yeah, yeah, which, which like, was completely insane. I remember, I remember because it was like, for the first two days of this year, I was like, you know, there's always like that New Year optimism, like, oh, you know, um, you know, maybe maybe this year won't be quite as much bullshit. Or I, it wasn't even that. I was like, I was like waiting for the bullshit to start happening. And then it was like the third day, January third, we just assassinated like one of the top Iranian Iranian commanders, and I was like, oh god, mm-hmm. it's gonna be like that, isn't it? Um, yeah. And also, I'm one hundred percent sure that like. That you know they're using Al Shabaab as an excuse to expand their footprint in Kenya um, yeah. to 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 fight China because oh, that's going to yeah. be a big thing too. Yeah, that's... they're going to use Chinese influence and Chinese quote unquote neo colonialism as a means to expand the actual neo colonial military footprint that is already all over Africa. I that's that you know you can count on a Biden and Harris administration to keep that one going full throttle. Yeah, and um, I mean, well, what else did you notice from the VP? Uh, yeah, I mean, what? Yeah, I mean, what's funny is basically just uh, aside from Mike Pence being an idiot, is yeah, the kind of new look, you know, neoliberal, the new look neoliberal Democrats, where like they, you know, now they're they're saying that they've heard what the left is talking about, 
and they acknowledge it and they validate it, but of course they're not going to do anything about it. Oh, it's uh, kind of like, um, well, today is Indigenous Peoples Day. And yeah. so it's kind of like people saying, we acknowledge that Indigenous people are here and we hear you. But then it's like, hey, and so what What about giving land back? Uh, Not so fast. Yeah, yeah, about that. That's very... Yeah, Wait, was... what? You're telling me this entire country is stolen land and we might have to give shit back? What? Yeah, it's a sovereign nation. Yeah, and so you know, you know, the one of the things we were talking about before recording is like I actually don't know if the if the if the libs are going to get to go back to sleep because you know, they're on day 1 like their first task is going to be the pandemic and also the recession depression um that and getting you know getting the economy out of the toilet and you know well it's already it's doing great for you know billionaires but for actual human beings um getting it out of the toilet and getting like people to be able to like you know get like assuaging people's anxiety so people can go quote unquote back to normal i mean that's their that's the entirety of their campaign promise is back to normal so they have to actually be able to do that Right. And, you know, the only sort of, you know, their COVID platform is just listen to science. We'll listen to science. And yeah, they will listen to science, but they're also going to listen to healthcare executives and pharmaceutical executives and everyone else. And those people will probably have a, you know, more of an ear. They'll lend them more of an ear than they will the scientists, which, of course, they will listen to the way they listen to activists and the left. Um, I'm doing scare quotes, but you can't see that, obviously. <laughs> um, the only thing she had said was contact tracing, which, you know, they'll probably use Google to do that. I mean, they Google and Apple already installed like a COVID app on everyone's phone and they'll do cool. COVID track. Yeah, yeah, they did that like while you weren't paying attention, but they did it on everyone's phone. Um, they'll probably do that. And then... Um, then the QAnon crowd will say that is, you know, globalist uh, authoritarianism. And then maybe they'll all smash their phones, hopefully, and protest or something. But either way, they'll freak out um, by any sort of heavy-handed measure. Any, well, they won't be heavy-handed because it'll be neoliberalism. And that's the thing, is that they'll use neoliberal idiocy to nudge people because... The whole thing of neoliberalism is it's hollowed out the state's capacity to actually mobilize the mat, like the actual nation to do something, which is what 20th century pre-neoliberal governments were able to do, you know, in good and bad ways. But you could use it for mass mobilization purposes. You can't do that with neoliberalism. Their whole thing is like, we're just going to nudge people and like, you know, kind of like, it's like, they're all like coders and they... Or just kind of like setting the parameters and trying to steer people one way, but no, but they're never going to come out and say this. So they're going to do something like that, and then the mega idiots will freak out, and then they'll use that as an excuse for not having to do anything more because they've already conditioned the Democratic voter base to be to be afraid of the Republican response to anything that they do which is an inherent limit on anything they have to do. So they don't ever have to actually do anything because they'd be like, well, look what the Republicans would say. So they don't ever have to actually take any political risks. Meanwhile, the things that like are actually proven that would actually help, which is, you know, you'd have to do another shutdown. Yet you would have to con 
Yes, you would have to contact trace, pay people to stay home yes. while you're doing that, and you know, basically do a temporary Medicare for all so that everyone has coverage, complete coverage. Those are the things that would be required to actually get the pandemic under control. And that's and, like and that's like at minimum, basically. Yes, what you're saying minimum. is that's what you're saying that, is at that's minimum. That's what we should have done in March. Yeah. And but like we're kind of in the same place, so we'd still have to do it again. In fucking October with yes, over two hundred thousand yes. people dead. Yes, and millions of people with the with the virus. Um they're not gonna do that. I don't know what they're gonna do, but it's not that. And so you know, I don't I don't know what's gonna happen. I mean, they're gonna inherit a complete and total mess and they can blame Trump for it for probably two years, you mm-hmm. know, until the midterms. So they can use that as an excuse to not have to do anything because nobody in D.C. wants to actually do any governing. That's not why anyone ever gets into politics and moves to D.C. is to actually govern in any way. And so they want to get out of doing that, you know, because nobody wants to take the risks as if it because if it backfires, then they, you know, they look bad. Uh, so, I mean, we'll see. That's the thing that but that's the thing that bugs me is just like I don't think people are quite. You know, Trump has made everyone so crazy and, you know, obviously, like he has engaged in criminal levels of neglect and a large amount of the deaths are on his hands. But, you know, personally, I can't say that my dad would still be alive if Biden were president. I don't know, Um, because it's a structural problem and people haven't been able to think that way. And, you know, Biden, (laughs) you know, at the very least, hopefully a Biden-Harris administration will reveal that it is a structural problem um, and that that is that we need to, uh, that it's going to take structural solutions, which they are not incapable of doing. They're, they don't either have the capability or the political will or desire to do any of that. So I don't know. I don't even know if these people get to go back to to sleep and you know we get to have concerts again i mean i don't know well well the thing is people like biden and harris the the democrats the democratic party um to do what you just said which again is the bare minimum would require them to upset the very forces that control the democratic party and that's why they're not doing it the democratic party is still in the pockets of silicon valley um big pharma all these big corporations so you know to to do something like you know pay people to stay at home well you know that hurts the uh that upsets the market gods which you know yeah. the democrats uh drink from the same market god yeah. trough yeah as yeah i mean the line has to go up that's bipartisan consensus right exactly so you know democrats are not going to they're not going to go far to upset wall street and the market gods so so they're not going to do that. Um, also, like, I mean, Biden, Biden made very fucking clear that, like, there's going to be no single payer health care, even though they said, like, oh, we listen to the left. So basically what that means is that um, they listen to the left. They listen to Bernie Sanders and they, you know, they said, like, OK, we listen, listen. Here's our response. Fuck, Fuck you. you. <laughs> <laughs> that's the right. like, response. Yeah, it's like, oh, all right, let's sit down to a negotiation. All right. Here's our offer. Nothing. Right. You get nothing. Suck my dick. That's basically what they're saying. It's like, basically, Biden is telling the left to eat shit and die. 
Yeah, by, yeah. by the way, that fuck you was perfectly timed, by the way. No, was. <laughs> that shows like yeah. how much you and I are in pocket right now yeah. <laughs> as musicians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right on the one. Ding, right there. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, like, yeah, like, the, like the, the the Biden made it. I mean, at least Biden's honest uh, about what he mm-hmm. thinks about the left. And I didn't watch the debate, though, but one thing that did, a, a clip that I heard of, which is that... Um, Kamala Harris tried to make some sort of own against Pence on fracking and basically saying it like, you know, Biden Harris, like they're not going to ban fracking, which is like, um, Kamala Harris, she's the senator of California, which has been going through like unprecedented wildfires and that are directly linked to practices like fracking, which are terrible for the fucking environment and definitely, um, are contribute to the increasing amount of carbon emissions, which, you know, melt the polar ice caps, whatever's left of them, that is, and contribute to warmer climate and drought droughts in places like California, which leads to more intense wildfires. And, you know, like she, she, she went to, you know, visit, she, she went to, uh, you know, she saw the wildfires and all that stuff. And despite yeah. all that, she's still not going to ban, ban fracking. So it's like, Oh, okay. So, you know, did all this like talk, 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 like, oh yeah, like we understand. That's the thing about the Democrats is they're very good with the feel your pain language. Like we feel your pain, yeah. but we're not going to do shit about it. Um, because <laughs> which, which the, makes them, which is more morally egregious than not knowing. Cause like, you know what the problem is. You are just not intentionally not doing anything about it. Because the yeah, again, the people who line the pockets of the Democratic Party are linked to, to the very they are part of the problem. They're causing the problem that they say they know so much about. Um, and that's why they're not, you know, going to do anything. Well, at least they're not going to do what's required to address the crises we're talking about. Like COVID-19 is one of them, but then you add in climate change and the war machine. They're not going to do, yeah. they're not going to do shit about that. Wh- which are, which are very related because U S military, the world's biggest polluter. Oh, big. Yeah. Big polluter and a major driver of uh, carbon emissions. It's one of the biggest because you have to con- consider like all the um, trainings and testing and the bombs and the fuel yeah. they use. Like that's a ton of fossil fuels and a lot of carbon being emitted by those jets, those aircraft carriers. And also, I mean, shit, think about the nuclear weapons that are that are around the world um, and the, mm-hmm. the <laughs> just, you know, the um, uh, the the effects of that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I. Yeah, I, I mean, a, a Biden, like a Biden-Harris presidency, honestly, I can picture them getting elected in 2020 just for the sake of stability that, like, Trump is at the point where... Yeah, I mean, the wheels are falling off of that of that thing. Right, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think, like, what could happen is that Biden-Harris get elected in 2020, but... um. Do absolutely they, nothing. They do nothing, and then another Republican wins in twenty twenty four. Yeah, yeah. Then like Tucker Carlson or Daddy QAnon, because um, I I was thinking, I while I was watching the debate that like I know that these like you know TPUSA young conservative types are trash because if they had any capability, they would just start talking about how Daddy Mike Pence is. And yes, Ugh. I am very sorry for putting that in your head, but Ugh. I thought of it. And now you have to think of it too. But I'm thinking that like it's only a matter of time before a Republican politician just runs as Daddy. 
because that I remember in 2004, they're like, Republicans are the daddy party. That preceded uh, Tumblr or whatever, you know. So they, they'll probably come around to that. Or, yeah, or it'll be Tucker Carlson or something. And then but we're going to get, like, an even more psychotic Republican party. And then it's going to be like, you know, oh, the left doesn't want to vote for Biden cause, just because he didn't do anything, you know. And we'll be literally right back in this exact same place that we were now, four years later. We'll be mm-hmm. in the exact same place. Mm-hmm. And nothing will change because that's what they ran on. That's what they're running on. Nothing will change. So at least they're probably I'm pretty sure they're going to make good on that. Yeah, that's that's uh, that is a campaign promise that you can bet they will follow through on. We will do nothing. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And um, and speaking of like, um, just to clarify, like, you know, I think there's a distinction between the uh, like I was saying earlier before the podcast, there's a distinction between the political calculations of liberal politicians and the and versus people who are like um liberal cheerleaders to could say yeah you know so yeah the liberal pol- yeah the democratic voting base right so the liberal democratic politicians like you know their calculation is that they're, they're not going to do much they're going to keep the they're just going to basically make the system stable but the liberal cheerleaders like i think they're they're putting all their weight on um this idea that once Biden Harris get in, then they can things will go back to normal and they can go back to sleep. And and Peter, what I get that you're saying is that like they won't be able to go back to sleep because things will still be so yeah um obviously yeah. bad. I mean, I <laughs> yes, I don't I, look. I would love for them to go back to sleep. Honestly, <laughs> please get out of the way. Um, please, please go away. You're not helping. But they, I don't think we'll be that lucky. Look, I would love to be wrong. Like whenever. Whenever I get into arguments, you know, because this is this is the, you know, month of prime posting where everyone has to post and I am not and I don't post, but I do comment and I'm not I'm I'm only human and can only hold back for so long. I should I should be above it. But yeah, like whenever you say that, there's it doesn't whenever whenever I bring up that like, yeah, there's nothing like like what happens when they do nothing like nobody has that nobody gets that far right um, yeah yeah i mean it's it's um this just reminds me of uh when i was on cold james cash's show with uh jamie peck and david griscom we, we were talking about what the left should do in, in in either scenario in case of a biden presidency or a trump presidency and i i like there's all these i mean there is this Speaking of, you know, the discourse and Twitter, there's this massive kerfuffle uh, with Noam Chomsky on um, Bad Faith Podcast, hosted by Virgil Texas and Brianna Joy Gray. Um, she's a former press secretary for the for Bernie, the Bernie Sanders campaign 2020. And uh, they had a big ass argument with Chomsky about, you know, lesser voting Democrats as lesser evils and I didn't watch the whole thing. I saw a few clips, but I, it was just, it was so bad it was trending on Twitter. So that's when you know, like, oh, shit is getting, shit is getting serious in the Twitter discourse that something, something is trending. Yeah. And um, my issue with those, t- to me, I, I think it's the wrong question to ask. The real question for people who are on the quote unquote left is um, similar to what Cole James Cash asked, which is that, 
you know, what should the left do in case of, let's say, a Biden presidency, right? Like, what should we do? And, 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 you know, my, my overall response is that, um, beyond just, uh, voting, like people like, okay, you know, if you live in a swing state, okay, yeah, sure. Vote for Biden or, you know, and I get the urgency of voting for Biden to get rid of Trump in, in the immediate short term. I get it. But the next question is, okay, what do you do? What comes next? Like, what do you do afterwards? Because I think Peter's right. Like, let's say Biden Harris get in. They're not really like things aren't really going to change. Like they're still going to be hideously bad. So if you're on the left and you're going to vote for Biden because um, you want to get Trump out, okay, then you have to plan for what comes next. And I think like what I was saying on Cole's show is that, um, um, I think with a Biden presidency, it could give the left a little bit more breathing room in terms of organizing, but they're oh, just because we won't all be put in jail, right? Yeah, and but but the other risk is that a lot of people um, are going are going to use a Biden presidency to uh, go to sleep and and return to normal, or use it as an excuse to not pay attention um, to what's going on. And I think you know the my thing is. You know, you should continue the same organizing you've been doing, you know, regardless of who's in power, uh, regardless of like, you know, a Republican is in, is in power versus or a Democrat's in power. But that to me, that's the real thing is that um, the the left uh, in the United States, in terms of institutional and or- organizational capacity, is very, very weak. And whatever energy we do put in, like a lot of it gets sucked into elections. And there's always like this sense of urgency that we have to vote for the Democrat because the Republican is so evil. I remember hearing that. This is the most important election in our lifetime. They said that in 2012. Right. Yeah, I remember in 2012. And people were saying that about Mitt Romney. (laughs) Now Mitt Romney has been at Black Lives Matter protests. So it's like, oh, okay. Like the guy people were saying in 2012 was like such a hideous Republican is now like, Oh, he's a little bit more woke now. Like, you, yeah, not yeah. He's answered Trump or something, right? Yeah, and then also George Bush gets rehabilitated because the eight years of Bush, people were comparing Bush to Hitler and being a terrorist. But now, like, oh, he's friends with Michelle Obama and they eat candy together at yeah. events. And 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 if Trump gets out of there and is still alive, he'll be rehabilitated yeah, too. Right. Um. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, who who knows uh, what will happen, but I do think that it's well, important that um, whatever activism goes on persists regardless of who's in power. But I but um, I think you make a good point, Peter, that because of the scale of the problems we have, it's, it's probably going to be more difficult for liberal cheerleaders to go to sleep as much as they wish because, um, yeah, like, COVID-19 is going to still be around until and even with a vaccine it'll still be around the only thing is that like we'll we'll develop some sort of immunity to it but um that probably won't come until middle of uh the middle of next year so we have at least like another six months of this thing um and it's already been you know six months so we're at the very minimum halfway through the pandemic and um yeah if, if if Biden and Harris aren't offering anything specific and tangible to address the pandemic and are also saying like, yeah, like we're not going to do shit about fracking. It's like, well, okay. So if, if that's the case, then expect this pandemic to continue and expect, um, 
more wildfires to continue in California. Although I do think that, yeah, like having a Democrat as president will, would mean like, you know, probably more funding to firefighters, but that doesn't mean that they're going to. Well, well no, Adam, you're forgetting. We're talking about Kamala Harris, who oh, famously right. argued against the early release of prisoners. Right, right, needed right. Prisoners to fight California wildfires. Well, so. we'll have like more prison labor for wildfire fighting, yes. which is but it, not. But it. it'll be, it'll be woke. It'll be really woke. Somehow. Yeah, be very woke. I do, I do, I do want to say um, something which can transition to our last subject which is that i mean the reason you know the uh the 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 maddow crowd the democratic voting bases in this perpetual state of terror is because they imbibe you know they mainline new york times and msnbc and all this you know especially cable news Mm -hmm. and it's all this corporate media where the basically the only thing they can really hype that is predictable but also grabs people's attention is election coverage and so that's why they do it non-stop and but they always have to convince you that the uh that the next election is even more important and it's even more stakes you know and so this i mean part of the problem is you know the media that these people are consuming because i mean the truth about it is that the media does like people rely on the media to do you know some of their thinking for them um which is why alternative and independent forms of media are so important right yeah yeah and i'm glad you yeah it's a great segue um earlier today <clears throat> i um i gave a it was a q a to a, a community college class on uh journalism and the q a was virtual and um so there is this journalism professor who also used to work at Truthout, so that's that's how we kind of cross paths um and so yeah, a couple of months ago, he had asked me in advance to be one of the guest speakers for his class, and I said sure. And um, uh, s- since I graduated from my MFA program, I think the one good thing about going to a graduate program like that is that it at least like forces you to be a little bit more introspective with your own writing and what you're doing. Um, so I've kind of gone through like my own introspection in terms of how I approach writing and journalism, which definitely relates to this podcast. And, um, I, I go by the overall principles of advocacy journalism, which is basically still being grounded in, uh, facts in fact driven reporting and research, but, still having um a uh some real progressive beliefs and a sense of moral urgency to report report on specific issues so for me it's issues like guantanamo the u.s war machine uh police violence and housing and um systems of institutionalized uh racist oppression Particularly as they manifest, yeah, in like housing, gentrification, policing, and and the war machine, um, all all of which like definitely disproportionately impact black people, um, especially when you look at like gentrification and police violence, and then we look at the war machine. It's it's pretty much black and brown people throughout the world, pretty much. Um, like I was kind of as I was alluding to earlier about yeah. the, um, 
U.S. military presence in Africa, like, you know, Somalia, Kenya, Libya, Niger. Um, <clears throat> so, like, the, the, those sorts of, like, beliefs and principles have guided how I view journalism, or at least how my approach to journalism. Um, and uh, I want to bring up two quotes that really stick with me and how I view my kind of journalism. Uh, the first quote is by Gordon Parks. He was a famous, nice. yeah, famous African American photojournalist for Life magazine. I read his autobiography, A Choice of Weapons, when I was a teenager, and uh, when I got into journalism, I went back to his book and um, basically he became essentially a source of uh, inspiration for me, not just as a journalist, but just as a human being, because he was also a musician and an overall like just Renaissance man. But um, he he really like for me just was a as a was a good example of what it means to be a free black man in a racist white world. Like he was, his life was very, very free, but he was still like, he still took pictures about of um, black suffering and black oppression, but not just to talk about black suffering and oppression, but to at least like guide the conversation forward in terms of coming up with productive solutions. So his quote, this is what he said. Uh, he said, I chose my camera as a weapon against all the things I dislike about America. Poverty, racism, discrimination. And uh, I actually read his quote uh, at my MFA reading. I didn't actually read. I actually did African drumming instead of reading my thesis. Because I felt like that. I felt like it. But it also ties into another saying I'm going to bring up. But but um, that, I mean, like, for me, it would be like replacing the camera, but with, like, pen and speech like using using those tools and language to highlight things that are wrong about the united states and and the world and sh shine light on them um so that people pay attention because these are issues that are still going on and they require attention but also uh um solutions and then the other saying that ties into what i was saying about african drumming there's this well-known african um saying about djembe the african drum and it says um a skilled djembe player can make the djembe talk or tell a story and um african drumming in a lot of traditional african societies is used as a form of storytelling so people pass down messages folklore in stories through music and drums so that's why um like rhythm is very much a part of everyday life in those societies which really does um influence the development of african-american music and black music throughout the diaspora that's why there's such an emphasis on rhythm and syncopation is because we come from a people who rhythm was a part of everyday life like it was a form of it became a form of uh, communication, like music and rhythm. So the idea of making the djembe talk or tell a story is basically like, look, you're using the drum to tell a story because music is um, it's accessible for large numbers of people. So if you want to communicate a message, if you do it in poetry and song, everybody can understand it versus 
um, arcane language that only a select few of, of nerds and elites can understand. So um, that's that's pretty much like, yeah, like how uh, messages and stories get told. And there are um, griots, African griots in particularly West African society who are, they're like a combination of um, like musicians and poets. The griot tradition actually, like if you look back, it's actually like a predecessor of rap music. Um, so griots are poets, but it's fused with the kora and sometimes drum, sometimes. But um, griots like uh, traditionally had the um, they had the uh, they were very close to the king. So if you wanted to know like what was going on, like particularly in the king's court and all the basically like the ins and outs of politics, you talk to the griots. And then there are some who are, I think, called jellies, and they were more like the people who knew what was going on kind of on the street level, or they knew kind of like a tabloid or gossipy sort of thing. Um, but I use that as inspiration in terms of how I approach my own journalism, which is basically, I'm telling a story as true as I can about the condition of black people uh today uh specifically people who are uh descendants of enslaved africans brought to the united states and north america and throughout the diaspora like that that's the thing that really uh especially as a black person really drives me like to make sense of that condition um but not just make sense of it but also work towards solutions to address it um and i say that because uh <clears throat> As a African American black journalist, I I am very very uncomfortable writing about black suffering, the suffering of my own people, uh, without offering a positive vision, and also like being as being black, like having to deal with systemic racism on a personal level. I feel uncomfortable writing about black suffering without offering some sort of positive vision, because like the dominant discourse of uh black commentators on race is like let's have a conversation on race and talking about black suffering da, 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 da. and it kind of gets to the point where black suffering becomes a commodity because like these are people who just make careers off of talking about black suffering but without offering any sort of solutions or positive vision or transformational vision and that's something uh I, i'm uncomfortable with so you know, with a podcast like this, this is a chance to do like actual commentary and punditry and also bring forth like, yeah, my own like real experiences as, as an activist, but also my why I believe uh, Pan-Africanism is a roadmap forward for black people collectively around the world in terms of empowering ourselves and also challenging systems of oppression that oppress us uh globally so yeah like the pan-african solution to what's going on in, in nigeria is basically solidarity uh between the black american struggle and what's going on in nigeria like that is a form of pan-africanism in linking those struggles together and understanding that does it doesn't matter if, if someone is jamaican or african-american or nigerian or whatever like we're all fundamentally the same people like we're we share a common heritage and a common history and a common destiny and a common fate. And we have to work together 
collectively to address those problems. Um, and, and also, like, it presents a stronger front against the larger systems that oppress us rather than trying to fight these things uh, fragment, uh, sort of fragmented and going solo soldier rather than just working together. So, uh, yeah, so that that's how I approach journalism, and that, that's kind of what guides the um, ethos of, of this podcast because... Um, there definitely is a dearth of black political commentary and punditry because they like the term pundit I think has been uh uh like there's kind of yeah, a bad connotation it's like a negative connotation with pundit pu- uh, being a pundit would you want to say something Peter yeah oh well yeah um just yeah because when you had brought that up I was like I don't yeah it's, pundit is still kind of a dirty word to me but I, I think there's another way to think about it, which is, yeah, just communicating the reality and, you know, getting on the mic and uh, spitting truth, you know. And, yeah, I mean, doing some agitprop. I mean, I propaganda is not a dirty word to me. And, you know, obviously, like, the most effective propaganda is rooted in the truth and in reality. And that's, yeah, that, yeah. I sort of see like three parts to our mission and one is, yeah, political commentary. One is, you know, theoretical grounding, um, doing sort of in-depth, you know, readings and historical context and stuff. And then the third is being connected to actual movements on the ground um, and platforming organizers and, you know, giving direct voices to, you know, communities and people actually engaged in the work and the struggle. And, you know, there, I, I don't, there are obviously a lot of podcasts out there that we listen to and respect a lot, but I don't know a lot that are necessarily doing all three at the same time. Um, So that, so that's, you know, I think that sort of in the unified vision um, of what we're trying to do here, I think that, yeah, that, that's, that's what's important. And it's really well put the way you said it, because it's, it's yeah pan-africanism is such an important thing and it's amazing how much it gets overlooked or just disregarded especially when people are talking about africa yeah and it's just like right no it's it's kind of right there in front of yeah Um, yeah and and part of the reason like what drove me drove me to pan-africanism is that even like my own work writing about the u.s war machine Look, I gotta look at Africa because look, there's drone strikes in Somalia. There is an intervention in Libya. So me as a black journalist, like I am concerned about what's going on in Libya, like the U.S. militarism in Libya and it, it's spreading into countries like Niger and Mali, and then was the drone strikes in Somalia and then that spreading to Kenya. Like to me, like that that's at least you know the most minimal expression of Pan Africanism I can exercise is using my position as an African-American journalist, especially one who's based in the United States and my government, even though like my relationship to America is based is, <laughs> stems from being my ancestors being brought here as, as, as slaves, um, you know, being here in America, I, I can still use my position in the belly of the beast to uh, speak out against um whenever the u.s war machine's tentacles uh touch africa which it's doing and you know the 
Britain and France have never left Africa. And uh, um, even in my, my own experience of being in lefty media spaces, like, you know, people don't really talk about Africa or, or the U.S. war machine with that level of, uh, of depth. Um, so, yeah, I, I choose to use my position to sort of bring that perspective that often gets overlooked and when i the reason why i brought up the gym base thing there's all these um people talk about decolonize decolonize this decolonize that decolonize your volvo decolonize your briefcase da, 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 da. Like, decolonize this continent jesus and and what i think of decolonization for me for for black people it's basically instilling an african consciousness is basically reawakening that African consciousness that was suppressed by slavery and colonialism, um, because um, it's not just like the the physical systematic violence against the body that where racism is manifested. Racism is also manifested in the mind and getting black people to think um, or not even think like they're oppressors, but um, uh, try to beg for the validation of their oppressors and and put their oppressors on a pedestal above them. And that's a form of uh, serious mental colonization that a lot of black people, you know, we still suffer from. And it's not just African-Americans. It's all throughout the African continent and the diaspora, like, you know, all of us have been um, infected by this virus of uh, of of um, European mental colonization. And so, the, me playing djembe and and the saying I was bringing up for me, it's like this is a way for me to at least ground myself in a in an African consciousness um, and not just rely on understanding the plight of my own people through the lens of the Europeans. Um, because I, I still think that that perspective is pretty limited if you're trying to understand black people's condition. And, and the reason why I brought up punditry is that, um, like since I'd say like maybe the, the Bush years, there's been this growth of independent left media um, I mean, Truth Out started, I think, around like 2006 or 2007. Majority Report started a, like a, I think, like two years after that, around there. Um, so, and then there's Chapel Trap House, which obviously came up around uh, 2016. And there's been this growth of like a left wing independent media ecosystem that um, definitely is very important, but. What I was what I was telling the students is that um, a lot of what they do is uh, punditry, but from the progressive slash left perspective. But even in that that space, there's not a lot of black voices. Because um, the thing is, like, whenever there's like black commentary or quote unquote news, the issues are like the perspective is very limited. It's usually like the root which is look i'm i'm gonna just be i'm gonna yeah. be blunt like the roots commentary is just not it's it's not good quality stuff um it's it's, it's trash and or if it's if, if it's not the root it's um the breakfast club 
which is even worse. Oh, God. Um, but it's like, that's it. Breakfast Club can be actively malicious at times. Yeah. And the thing, here's the thing is that, um, what I think is a problem is that, um, in order to understand, for black people to understand our issues, the people who are supposed to be our spokespeople are very ineffective at it. Um, Cause it's like, if the best we can do with, with black media, political commentary is the fucking breakfast club in the root, then we're in deep shit. Um, because like, it's not like, cause a lot of times like the root, like usually the stuff they write is just parroting what the democratic party is saying. That's pretty much shit, and yeah. and that's like the furthest extent of black political po- commentary. Yeah, that you're, yeah. All the black faces you see on CNN, they're all just Democratic Party. Operatives. Exactly. And I th- and I think what you're saying is that there needs to be more black voices coming from an actual left perspective, but also from a distinctly black perspective. Right. Exactly. That and, is speaking to those specific issues and that right. specific consciousness and intellectual and political tradition that goes back hundreds of years exactly yes bingo we're exactly yeah like the in and, and also a voice that's independent of that stuff like the voice that's yeah. independent of like you know because we're not here like we're, we're not we're not being paid by the democratic or republican parties and we're not we have no stake in their game and that's why we even our soros checks won't clear man. yeah no <laughs> I mean, it's, it's tough times i mean that's why we constantly you know lob metaphorical cruise missiles at them like so, so yeah. Like there needs to like, for years I felt that there just needs to be um, a black centered intellectual left wing um, political like publication that provides not just reporting but also commentary and punditry um, that is coming from yeah a deeper historical and intellectual tradition that often gets overlooked in especially left-wing and progressive media spaces which is seems kind of counterintuitive because you think like those would be the spaces that would be the most sympathetic which to be fair like yeah they tend to be but you know if i mean yeah compared to the right right, compared to the right and compared to liberals yeah they tend to be but you know it's still a they still suffer from the problem of whiteness so you need yes (laughs) so you need a black perspective to basically like hey we're doing this is a black perspective but we're we're doing punditry like that's what i realized like when i took a step back the stuff we're doing here is is punditry is commentary i mean because a lot of my writing is more reporting and fact-driven stuff but this is the actual like my own commentary and in punditry which like and what i mean punditry i mean like you know like the the stuff you would see maybe on msnbc and cnn but it's from a different perspective because those are all corporate owned so they're towing a certain line so we're we have our own sort of perspective and opinions but it's just as grounded in fact and reporting as some of those publications are um and there's just a real need for that because I don't think you can understand the condition of black people without independent black media that's centered on a black perspective and black consciousness and grounded in a black intellectual tradition to understand these issues, not just like issues that impact black people, but like, you know, like what's going on in other parts of the world as well and other struggles and how to look at how to look at those. 
Um, so yeah, like the, the black media space, like, uh, is leaves a lot to be desired, honestly. And that's part of the reason why I'm glad that you and I, Peter started this, this podcast, because it's just like, there's just, there is, there is no like real, cause if there's any kind of like black people who are talking heads, they're, they're either, if they aren't just being democratic party operatives, a lot of times the talking heads are talking about sports or they're talking about culture. But what I want wanted to do and what, I, what I'm passionate about, and this is what this podcast is, is, yeah, we talk about culture, but we're heavy on politics, like current events, politics. Yeah. We're doing political punditry. So it's not just like, you know, hey, let's talk about Megan Thee Stallion and Tory Lanez. Well, first of all, fuck Tory Lanez. That's all I got to say about him. And it's like, I don't want to deal like, I mean, it's an important issue, but um, it's not. It's not an important issue. I'm sorry. No, it's. It's. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, it's. <laughs> it's important in the sense that, like, it really sucks that you know Megan Thee Stallion got shot by, by that asshole. But it's like, in terms of in in terms of like, if you're going to give airspace to something, um, I wouldn't prioritize something like that on the top of my list versus something like, look, like we we only have like a finite amount of time to record episodes, so. Uh, I'm going to prioritize something like, I don't know, what's going on in Nigeria before, like, you know, talking about the latest tr- Twitter drama with whichever black celebrity that people want to talk about. Uh, but a lot of times, like, yeah, a lot of black uh, commentary gets focused on um, shallow representation, cultural appropriation, which those are things like... And, and that's not an accident either. Right. I mean, there's def- there's not a lot of money... And there isn't necessarily like an established, I think there is a market for the kind of stuff that we and, you know, the rest of the resistance and what podcast network is doing. I think there is definitely a market for it, but it's not one that giant media companies know how to pursue or even have an interest in pursuing. I mean, yeah, they, yes, they want black, they don't want like a whole lot of like black intellectual and you know political commentators making a lot of sense right you know being spreading that message out there they yeah they don't want that they they would much rather have charlamagne talk about whatever shit the baby is up to or something I'm, i don't know yeah, and Char- but, charlamagne like he well here's another thing is like people like him and i would also throw in Tariq nasheed as well um like uh Tariq Nasheed, um, we need to do an episode on people like him, but um, like I, I consider Tariq Nasheed to be the Alex Jones of black America. Like, he's definitely a grifter and a conspiracy. Like, the way he operates is very similar to Alex Jones. And Charlemagne the God is, he, he's just not sharp at all, but he just talks a lot of shit and knows how to get people mad and that's just what he's good at and it's like look if the if these are the people who are spokespeople for black people like we're in deep shit like like th- this is you know pe- people like um charlemagne the god no. are not useful for understanding black suffering at all like he's like hey, look he, you know, he can say whatever he wants but like he's not like if you're trying to understand on a deep level uh you know the condition and plight of black people Charlemagne the God should be the very, yeah. very last on your list. But because, like, yeah, like, they, yeah. They, they get a lot of... 
shit like you know breakfast club gets a lot of money you know when people want to understand yeah i mean it's syndicated by iHeartRadio, which is clear channel which is mm-hmm. like the one of the biggest media conglomerates and that's and it's broadcast on every radio station that's clear channel own every clear channel owned hip-hop station broadcast the breakfast club yeah every morning you know yeah. so that that's who that's who signs charlemagne's checks the root is owned by Univision. I mean, this isn't even black-owned media. Right. This is, you know, corporate white-owned media with black faces on it. And so it's functionally no different than CNN. Right, exactly. When they hire, you know, when they gave, uh, or MSNBC, when they gave Al Sharpton his shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not that, but that, but because they're able to, you know, code switch and, you know, speak A-V-E, Usually in like horrendously tortured ways, but they you the root uh, <laughs> that like people, you know, and I didn't even think they that they're per- I, the Breakfast Club has a lot has a large reach, but I don't think people necessarily take them seriously. But it, but they don't you don't have to take it seriously. It's just there in the background. It just seeps into your mind. And that's how propaganda. Right. That works. That's how that's why. You know, not. I mean, it, I don't. I don't care what it sounds like. That's that's how they control your mind. It's mm-hmm. not through like specific images or messages. Like people get, you know, they get mixed up on that. It's not that. It's the background noise. It's everything going on in the background. It's the ticker. It's just reading that. It's just glancing through the headlines, and that's and the those worldviews, the way that are reflected in just the background noise. That's what seeps in. And so you're not necessarily thinking like in an animated way that this is what the way the world works and you're consciously thinking about it. It's just like, oh, that's just what that's just the reality of the situation. And if you don't investigate any of it further, then you're just like, well, this is this is the way it is and nothing can be done. And that's why you need independent alternative media that is that is, you know, the goal is to not do your thinking for you but to help you think you know yourself Um, yeah and you know that's what we're trying to do yeah so Uh, we can probably wrap this up pretty soon yeah yeah and just to um yeah put a put a bow on this um um yeah like there i mean i'm i i do i agree i think i do think there's a market quote-unquote for um a podcast like ours but um you know it's we're we're not going to get the same kind of like funding and attention that uh something like the root or um the breakfast club will and you know that's that's not what we aim to do anyway but we're we're still doing like black media from a black perspective to understand politics black politics and politics in general both local state national international and uh i i always felt that that was missing because sometimes even in media spaces even i've had even like i had an argument with a a white journalist about this but i mean in terms of what's considered a black issue um you know like sometimes white people in media try to act as arbiters of what's considered a quote-unquote black issue <laughs> you know and it's like okay well if that's how the the media ecosystem operates and that thus who controls it then 
we're not we're not we're not in good shape um right right oh yeah yeah the ghettoization where it's like well no we need black people on to talk about quote-unquote race issues but like right race issues are economic issues they're political issues mm-hmm. they're international issues they're social issues they're they, they're all of it so the idea that there's like okay well when we need to talk about race then we'll bring the black people on yeah and then we'll get them out of the way right before they start talking about too much other stuff right i mean that's still the way you know the mainstream media operates now yeah because like punditry is seen as quote-unquote serious in media and so the only quote-unquote serious people are white people in media like like that's that's who they consider like that's who's considered serious are like you know white people like you know nate silvers and the chris hayes of the world like they're the serious ones um, yeah, yes the serious newscaster voice i i remember because i used to watch chris hayes when he was like still nerdy and trying to pretend to be like radical mm-hmm. and then like i watched him develop the like serious white man newscaster affect and i was like man why did i ever get sucked into this dude mm-hmm. yeah yeah you know? yeah and um um and if there are black people who are pundits it's like a very like kind of select few but they're the system knows how to filter them out and pick c- certain yeah. ones yeah yeah um but yeah like and they're usually hired to say like extra heinous shit mm -hmm. that even white people will stay away from looking at you joanne reed (laughs) yeah yeah so um yeah what we're doing is i realize yeah punditry and political commentary and you know again like that was always that's always been seen as something that is serious that only white people can do so black people stuff gets ghettoized into like culture hip-hop race sports so like usually when you have like yeah black talking heads they're usually talking about like those sorts of issues and they kind of get siphoned into those and i just i'm i was never the kind of person who felt like i never really wanted to play that game because i always felt that there are other issues impacting black people around the world than just um these sorts of uh ghettoized um categories and you know you can't really it's really hard to change the minds of white people who control the media ecosystem so it's best to have independent black media platforms to provide a counter narrative so that yeah like you know uh reach a different audience and if people want to take it seriously you know so be it but we're not I'm certainly not here to uh, uh, please CNN executives yeah. unless they like you know have something valuable to say or if you know whatever. But my they won't right. <laughs> um, I I will I will say I I am down to talk about sports, but I'll wait until you're not here to do. Yeah, it. I mean I don't mind talking about like sports and those sorts of things, but it's like it's it's uh I don't like that. The only time, like, uh, you know, black people are seen as serious pundits is when we're talking about sports or hip hop or this sort of vague thing called race, whatever it is. Like, whenever, like, a conversation on race needs to be talked about is that or, like, they need some sort of black talking head to, to, to 
parrot whatever the Democratic Party they they get that personal. I was like, no, like we we have our own like intellectual perspective and traditions that are a lot broader than that. And you know, I don't I don't like being I don't like being pigeonholed in that. That's that's the thing I just don't like is that sort of that kind of pigeonholing that but it's 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 a pigeonholing that like white people built and it's like no i'm not gonna sit in your little pigeonhole i don't care but you know when you adopt when you adopt that mindset it you know yeah people aren't people aren't quite used to it but um yeah i mean that's how like black discourse gets controlled is through that kind of pigeonholing and ghettoizing of what's considered a black issue and uh um yeah because like i feel like even uh (laughs) before black lives matter it wasn't really cool for black people to talk about politics that much or even race like during the 2000s like that wasn't like a thing that was like cool to do but now since black lives matter it's like okay now it's a cool thing to talk about race and uh um yeah like (laughs) fuck i yeah yeah i mean there there was always like the underground militant hip-hop but yeah, in general, like if you try, like it is, it is kind of almost night and day. But yeah, people like in the '90s, early 2000s, it's like you just didn't talk about race, or if you did talk about race, it was to point out that black people can be just as racist as white people, mm-hmm. if not more racist sometimes. Yeah. and that was basically the end of the discussion. Right. Yeah, and even um, even like with, uh, I'll say this point, and then we can then we can wrap up. But like even with, okay. uh, this is why I had mentioned hip hop, but like, um. I remember this. Do you remember this thing called the hip hop vote? You remember that? Oh yes, I do. Yeah, yeah I think uh, it was because the hip hop summit. Yeah, I think my brother like was involved in that in two thousand. Which is like not that's not even an actual constituency. No. It doesn't exist, but it's like something that got manufactured. I think it's around two thousand four, around there, like the mid two thousands. Yeah. No, I I remember this. Yeah, and in re- I went to in it. in retrospect, like it's really stupid but i think what happened is that um the industry like the music industry and hip-hop industry they wanted to um they wanted to water down any sense of pro-blackness in hip-hop which was always there like since you know the last poets public enemy brand nubian tupac shakur like so all that like kind of pro-black stuff the black militancy yeah the the militant tradition yeah like the the whatever was left of like the militant the black militant tradition of the 70s it all got transferred to hip-hop basically like because that was because like all those black radical movements were pretty much destroyed and a lot of black militant uh leaders were incarcerated or killed so the only place that energy could be um sent to was culture and hip-hop but then hip-hop became more mainstream and usually when something gets more mainstream it's like okay now um white people have to uh be into this like you gotta share it with white people now um and uh so uh, that that's one thing that i i think uh is responsible for the decline of black media is Oh, black people are all into hip hop, but wait, hip hop doesn't mean black anymore. It just means like anybody who listens to hip hop. So that could be like, you know, 
Uh, that is that which is everyone which is pretty much everyone so it's like well how is that a constituency like like because there's no because it's not a it's not a constituency based on shared political interest it's just like oh anybody who likes hip-hop but they can have completely different lives experiences political beliefs political interests and even also yeah like different um racial uh, class yeah class and racial experiences and interests um so yeah to put that all into like this vague uh hip-hop vote yeah that just waters down the black perspective even more because oh if if you know if you express any kind of you know black militancy or black assertion that hey look like this is hip-hop you know if you say stuff like, yeah, hip-hop, rap, this is black music, this is black culture, people will be like, oh my god, you're being divisive. It's for everybody. It's for everybody, man. I mean, I'm looking at uh, yeah, yeah, I people mean, like fucking Ebro yeah. and shit. Pro, pro tip, the reason they say hip-hop is for everyone is because they're trying to sell it to large audiences. Exactly. It doesn't mean that, doesn't, it's not a claim of the actual musical tradition. Right, exactly. Yeah, they're just trying to sell records and make everybody buy it. Buy it. it doesn't. Yeah, it says no. It reveals nothing about the roots of the tradition of, of the musical tradition or the musical craft itself. Uh. Anyway, yeah, that's it. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's it for another one for the books. Yep. Yeah. So. Um. Anyway, that that ends this episode where we talked about um the VP debate. Um the protests in nigeria trump's fucking you know covid and yeah i think we've pretty much landed on that like you know trump looks like he's because i remember like on the resistance to twitch stream we all felt like oh biden's going to lose but now that trump got covid i've i've kind of revised my position on that yeah um i mean i mean this is the democrats they could still blow right 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 yeah um and then yeah i've talked about the the mission of this podcast and uh my perspective on um journalism that uh yeah the the students they asked like really good questions and i enjoyed the talk and it just kind of inspired me you know to talk more about because it's something I, I never really talked about publicly so i thought i'd share on this podcast like how i how i approach journalism and what my journalistic philosophy is um into perspective i'm coming from and why there's why i think there's an urgent need for more independent um left black political left uh media outlets that yeah is coming from a black perspective it's not like uh we're all poc we're all colonized like no this is a black perspective because it's a specific experience that comes with being black um both in america and globally so anyway yeah that's the end of this episode um anything else you want to say peter uh no i think we got it all i mean we'll be back with more to say yep that's the benefits of there being a podcast is having a podcast is you're all you'll always be back (laughs) and there's always more to talk about yep yep all right as usual keep the faith and stay dangerous peace take care everyone